And uh, a warm welcome uh, to one and all. It's good that we can gather together again this evening and worship the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Let's begin uh, with prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we come again tonight, Lord, and we thank you that we can meet as your people. Uh, We thank you that we can worship you the true and the living God. We thank you that we can remind each other again of the wonderful truths of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and is risen from the dead. And we acknowledge tonight that while we are sinners, we are forgiven. We have been made new. We have a hope. We have a future. We have it all because of Jesus. And we acknowledge that this is not because of any work of our own. It is solely because of your amazing grace. And we come this evening in the name of Jesus. And we come by his blood, in his name. Amen. to have a Bible reading together now, but we're going to do the reading together on the, the screen uh, before you will turn there in your Bibles. It's very rare I will say don't turn there in your Bibles, but um, hopefully you'll be able to see the words uh, come on the screen. Uh, we're going to read together Psalm uh, 127. It's a psalm uh, of ascents. 
and it uh, just uh, praises God, or rather reminds God's people, that unless God does the work, uh, we labor in vain. But also in this psalm, it reminds us that uh, the the blessings of children in God's family, how they are a a heritage uh, from the Lord. And although uh, in this context, uh, it's talking about uh, physical offspring, we know in the New Testament, the children of God are the church, uh, and in our church, uh, children really are a, a real blessing to us. And that comes out in our passage in Matthew, uh, where we're going to see these uh, twin ideas of total dependence on God uh, and the blessing that children are an example to us of that dependence. So let's stand together uh, and read uh, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. Please uh, take your seats. Let's uh, bow our heads again and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us opportunities to share the gospel with children and young people. And we have sensed Uh, the loss of the programs we usually have going on over the last six months. I was saddened that we were not able this year to have our holiday club and uh, many other activities. But we give you thanks that over the last uh, few weeks we've been able to have our Sunday school and that we're able uh, very soon to restart Discoverers and 116. And so we pray that you would help us as a church to be a place where children come to know Jesus as they hear about him. Help us to love the children, just like Jesus so obviously did. And so we pray this week as we restart Discoverers and 116, that you would bring children back to us who we haven't seen for six months. We pray we would make new contacts. But most of all, we pray that they would remember their creator in the days of their youth. We ask for souls to be saved. We also ask that you would help us to reach out to their families, that they also would come to know the Savior. We pray uh, for the practical details of starting up again, that we would follow our guidelines appropriately, that parents would be confident to send their children to us, and that you would keep us safe as we meet together. We thank you for uh, all the children that come to our church, Uh, We thank you for those that have become believers through the work here. We thank you for the dedication of the leaders and the teachers in Sunday School and in Discoverers and 116. I thank you for the different gifts that you've given them, for the way that they use them for you. And we pray that this would continue in the days to come, that all of us would be praying for Uh, the children and young people of this church, that they would grow into men and women of God who serve you and lead the church in the future. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.
Well, I was meant to say before I prayed, actually, to, just to mention that we are starting up this week, uh, Discoverers and uh, One on Six, and uh, it'd be great if you could pray for us as we do that, uh, as, as we uh, start up again after being away for, for six months. Uh, so we do that on Friday nights, uh, Discoverers, and then that's followed straight after by One on Six, and we've got a big group of One on Six uh, coming this year, and that presents logistical challenges for us because you can only have 15 in a group and uh, we're trying to split them up and and do all that safely. Uh, So do pray for us uh, as we do that this week. But for today, uh, if you would turn in Matthew's Gospel to Matthew chapter 19. And this morning, or this evening rather, uh, we're going to uh, carry on from where we were last week from uh, Matthew 19 Uh, Verse 13 down to verse 30. Um, I don't know if you're familiar uh, with, if I was to say the phrase uh, dream team, uh, what that would mean. I think most of you would understand uh, the meaning of that phrase. It means a a dream team uh, is a group of people who are the best at whatever it is they do. Uh, Two famous ones that came to my mind of dream teams uh, for ex- as examples, uh, was in 1992, uh, the U.S. basketball team uh, was called the Dream Team. The reason being, it was the first Olympics where they were allowed to have professional uh, basketball players, and so they picked the best players from the NBA, and they just so were so much better than everybody else. Uh, they they easily won the gold medal. They were called the Dream Team. Uh, Another uh, group of people called the Dream Team in a a different context, uh, uh, not too long after uh, those Olympics, was, uh, you may remember, some of you, some of you weren't born, but O.J. Simpson had his murder trial uh, where he was acquitted, and the legal team that he put together was called the Dream Team. Uh, The reason being, he was able to afford the best lawyers that money could buy, which he assembled, and his dream team got him acquitted of murder. Now, I say this because when we think about putting a group of people together to to do a job, or if you were a king and you could select people to be in your kingdom, you might well think of gathering a dream team. But this is not the way that Jesus welcomes people into his kingdom. Uh, We are looking in Matthew 19 and in the chapters that follow, in chapters 20, 21, 22, and 23, really, of the countercultural, upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. So last week we saw that marriage and singleness in God's kingdom is countercultural, or upside-down. And this week... We're going to see that Jesus is completely countercultural in the way that he welcomes people into his kingdom, or rather, who he welcomes in and who find it hard to be welcomed in. And there is a question in our passage tonight that I want you to notice that shows that the people that Jesus welcomes, the ones he chooses to be in his kingdom, are the opposite of what you might expect and of who the world would choose as their dream team. And this question is this, who then can be saved? That question reveals in this passage that I'm about to read the the shock of the disciples at who is welcomed in and who finds it really hard. It's totally countercultural. So let's read uh, Matthew 19, and I'll read from verse 13 down to verse 30. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Just then, A man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. 
Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or Brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. This is God's word. So in the, a dream team, you want those who have much to offer. Those who can bring much to the table would be on the dream team. But in the beginning of this passage, notice how Jesus is welcoming into his kingdom a group of, of, of people in society that in the world's eyes bring nothing at all to the table. We see that in Jesus' upside-down kingdom, those who bring nothing find welcome. So in verse 13, we see people bringing children uh, to Jesus, little children. Now, it was common practice in these days for parents to bring children uh, to a rabbi and seek uh, their blessing and to be prayed over. And Jesus does not want to turn these children away. He welcomes these children to himself. But we read what the disciples did. It says, they rebuked them. Rather than rebuking the children, who probably didn't have much choice or knew what was going on all that much necessarily, the rebuke really is for the parents. How dare you bring little children to such an important and busy man as Jesus? That was the kind of attitude that they had. As far as they were concerned, Jesus has no time at all for children. Now, where does this kind of attitude come from? Well, it comes from the culture of their time in the Roman Empire. In chapter 18 of this gospel, we see how Jesus used children as an example of greatness in the kingdom. And it was a big shock to the disciples then. And I used, when I was in that passage, a quote that I'm going to show on the screen now that shows the attitude of the Romans to children. This is what this historian says. Uh, hardness was a Roman ideal. The skill required to hunt out glory or endure disaster was the defining mark of a citizen. It was instilled in him from the moment of his birth. The primary response to Roman parents to their babies appears to have been less tenderness than shock that anything could be quite so soft and helpless. To the Romans, such a condition verged on the scandalous Children were certainly too weak to be idealized, and the highest praise a child could be given was to be compared to an adult. A Roman did not become a citizen by right of birth. It was within the power of every father to reject a newborn child, to order unwanted sons, and especially daughters, to be exposed. And exposed means that the child was left outside 
to die. Interestingly, in in, uh, church history, it was Christians, uh, the Christian church, that picked up many of these exposed babies, uh, lots and lots of little girls, and brought them into the family of God. It was one of the defining marks, actually, of, of the early church. But that's a, kind of an aside. This is the kind of attitude that the culture around them had at the time. And the disciples had this view ingrained on their minds so that children to them were nothing. They were just weak. They were pathetic. They could bring no value at all to the kingdom of God. And so what would Jesus want to have any time uh, any, anything to do, any time to have for children. But notice what Jesus says in verse 14 of our passage. He says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Do not hinder them, Jesus says. In chapter 18, they were used as an example of how to enter God's kingdom. And this kind of attitude was rebuked by Jesus. And here he reminds them again, do not hinder them. I welcome the children. In in chapter 18, the children actually were used as an example. But here they are not just an example. They are actually welcomed into God's kingdom. And children today are welcome to be part of the kingdom of God. It's not just a kingdom for adults. We may today have a, a better attitude than the Romans did. We do have, uh, children have rights and we have child protection and all those kind of things in our country which are are good things. But our attitude can be sometimes like that of the disciples towards children, can't it? Children can be messy, they can be noisy, inconvenient, and rude. You children might not think so, but some children are. However, we must not hinder them from coming into the kingdom of God. Well, how might we hinder them? Well, we can hinder children by making church miserable for them. That's a, that's a real hindrance. We can hinder children by not teaching them the truth or dumbing it down so much that it doesn't really help them to know Christ. We can set a bar so low in teaching our children and young people that they don't really learn anything. Whereas my philosophy has always been set the bar high, make it relevant and and engaging and all of that, but let's teach them the truths about Jesus that we've been singing about tonight. We can hinder them by getting upset with them for just being children and doing things that children do. We can hinder them by rolling our eyes and feeling frustrated When a baby makes a noise in a service, which is one of the most beautiful noises in a church, there are so many churches uh, that would give anything to have that noise in their church. We must not roll our eyes and be frustrated when a child makes a noise uh, in a church. We should rather thank God that we have children in our church and that they enjoy coming. That's a real wonderful uh, aspect of church family life, isn't it? And we should be praying for those children to come to know Jesus for themselves. And we should be all part of the work of showing them Jesus in our words and in our deeds. The gospel and the kingdom of God is for them as well. But whilst children are not only an illustration but are actually welcome. Nevertheless, Jesus does use them as an illustration of how all of us are to come to Jesus. So notice that in the second part of verse 14. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So such as these means these kind of people. What kind of people? Those who can bring nothing those that cannot help themselves, those that are dependent. That's how we are to come into God's kingdom. God's kingdom are for those who are messy and fragile and small and in dire need of help because our sin has separated us from God and there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. That is how all of us come to God 
to be in his kingdom. We are only able to be saved by his grace. We need his help. We cannot do it on our own. Our works count for nothing towards our salvation. And so therefore, we come like dependent children to a father who need him because we cannot do anything else. And so we welcome children because they are welcome into God's kingdom anyway, but we look at children and we are reminded that is exactly how I come into God's kingdom. Uh, I'm about to say in our final hymn, that doesn't mean we're going to do it right now, uh, but in our final hymn, uh, these words uh, are gonna, uh, we're going to hear, uh, which sum this point up perfectly. Uh, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. There is no way we can come to God unless we come with nothing in our hands. And by the way, we come with nothing, and he gives us everything. That's the gospel, isn't it? And so in verse 15, uh, Jesus blessed them. He prayed for them. And then with this lesson ringing in their ears of you can bring nothing. To be, you have to, to, you, those that bring nothing are welcomed. And that's ringing in their ears. He goes from that place. And then in verse 16, we read, just then. So just after they hear about the children, just then, a man came to Jesus. Well, what, what do we know about this man? Well, this man in verse 20, we read, was young. In verse 22, he had great wealth. And we'll see he's a very morally upstanding member of the community. He was, in the world's eyes, the opposite to the little children that were coming to Jesus. They had nothing to bring. This man was young. He was rich. He was a good boy. He would have made the dream team. This man, he was, he was absolutely what anybody would look for. But we see that in Jesus' upside-down kingdom, we see that those who have much find entry hard. Those that have much find entry hard. So this man, who has everything, it seems, comes to Jesus with a question. He says, teacher, What good thing must I do to get eternal life? So despite apparently having it all, something was missing for this man. When he asks here about eternal life, he's not talking about duration. How can I live forever? Rather, he's asking about quality or fullness of life. So eternal life is about having a full a a satisfying, a a complete life. That's what he's really asking for. It's not just, we see the word eternal and we're thinking, how can he live forever? It's not that. It's more, how can I have the life that, 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 that we're made for? He knows he is missing something. Despite his riches and his good deeds and his youth, he is missing something. So he says, uh, what, can I, what must I do to get eternal life? And he goes to Jesus, because Jesus is a teacher, and he's asking him, what, what special thing, what special something can I do to, to gain this thing that I lack? And good thing here is in the singular, so it appears that this man, is, it's like he's looking for the elixir of life. He's looking for that one thing that could make me complete, which I'm sure we've heard Lots of times before. What one thing? What, can I, what will make my life uh, complete? Well, Jesus, in answering this man in verse 17, asks him to reflect on the word good. Reflect on this word good, he says. If he wants to know what good thing to do, only God is good. So look to God. And God has revealed himself, as we've seen in the Ten Commandments, in those commands. Now recently, when we looked at the Ten Commandments, we saw that these are not just arbitrary rules from on high that God randomly gives. Rather, they are a reflection of the character of God. 
And so Jesus is saying, if you want to know what's good, only God is good, and God has revealed himself in his commandments, then just keep the commandments. Well, an interesting piece of of Bible trivia is that there are, in the books of Moses, 613 commands. And so when Jesus says, keep the commands, the man is thinking, well, you need to be a little bit more specific, Jesus. I know there's 613, and he's probably thinking, perhaps there's one I've missed, and that is the special something. So if Jesus gives me this one that I've missed, well, then I'll have what I'm looking for. But in verse 19, Jesus gives a list of pretty obvious ones that every Jewish person would know. He lists five of them, murder, adultery, stealing, lying, and honoring parents, plus a catch-all from Leviticus 19, verse 8, love your neighbor as yourself. Notice, all of these commandments that Jesus lists here are all ones which are observable. They're all ones which you can see with the eyes, in a sense. And the man knows this, and this is a man who is doing lots of good deeds, so the ones that he can observe, he's going to work hard to keep those. And so he says in verse 20, well, I kept all of these, but he still feels his lack. Notice that in verse 20, I have kept all of these, I have kept What do I still lack? He still knows he's lacking something. And he's he's treating the commandments as though they are a checklist to tick off, and he knows it's not enough for him. And I think that's why Jesus points out these commandments. He's pointing out ones that he knows the man will have ticked off his list. And he's pointing to the man, you can tick off the commandments all you like, you will always lack. And that is so true of us all. If you're relying on what you do to make you right with God, and you've got some kind of list, even not written down, in your, and it's in your head, and you're saying, yep, I do this, I'm, I'm good at that, I keep that, you'll always lack. Because you can't bring anything that makes you worthy of salvation. He never, he's not going to find, and neither will any of us, the life that we're looking for by simply trying our best to tick off the commandments. The problem is far deeper than that. And what Jesus is doing here is what he always does, especially with religious people, he exposes the problem we have with life and not having relationship with God by showing us the problem is in our heart. It is deeper than what we can observe. It's beyond what we can do. And this is what Jesus shows in verse 21. He says, Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. The word perfect here is an interesting word. It's important to realize he's not saying if you want to be sinless. The word perfect here means reaching a goal. So he's saying if you want to reach the goal of not lacking, if you like, then do this. Get rid of what is hindering you. And what is hindering him is his money. The man was rich, but being rich wasn't his problem. The problem he had was that he had failed in the first commandment. He had another God before the true and living God, the God of money and possessions. And that's a God for many, isn't it, in our world today? Their whole life is all about how much I have. And what can I get next? That is the world we live in. And we'll see why that's a problem as we go through. But Jesus is basically telling this man, exchange this God of 
of money and possessions, by selling all of those things which are your God, and gaining treasure in heaven. And that treasure in heaven is relationship with God and the eternal rewards which come from that. And this man has a divided heart. He he tries to to serve God and money. And we know from Matthew chapter 6 and verse 34, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 and verse 34. You cannot serve both God and money. But this man was trying to do both. He thought, I can have the best of both worlds. This is my God and this is my God. And Jesus is showing him here, no, it can't be. You have to decide, your money or me. And this man was blinded by his money Because he was thinking, I'm lacking something, but I can't see what it is. And Jesus points out what it was. Jesus opened his eyes, and he offered him an exchange. But then there's this tragic verse, verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And the tragedy is, he has the option... Of, of having that lack filled. But he chose to not have it filled and went away sad. And he was sad because he wanted both. But he wasn't prepared to go for Jesus. And it shows even you can reject Jesus and have it all and still be miserable. And many, many people choose to live that way. They don't think Jesus will quite cut it for them. Now, when reading verse 21, regarding selling possessions, often uh, we hear the disclaimer, don't we? Something along the lines of, well, this doesn't really mean that we have to sell everything and give to the poor. This was just for this rich man. And then we all sit and we're we're comfortable then and think, oh, phew. I actually thought Jesus was saying I had to do this. And we all then are are happy. But we shouldn't be too quick to just dismiss this verse and say, well, yeah, that was for this man, but not for me. Why? Because the teaching here is that we are to surrender all to Jesus and use all for him. So that whatever is hindering you from following Jesus should be got rid of And if money, therefore, is a hindrance to you, then you would be better selling all and giving all so that it is no longer a hindrance anymore. And so rather than say, this verse isn't really telling me to do this, rather we should examine our hearts and say, what is my relationship to money? Is it hindering me? Am I not able to follow Jesus as I ought? But all of us with our money should be a generous people. And the Bible has much to say in other places about how we do that. But don't just dismiss the verse completely and think we've got off. Rather examine ourselves and our relationship to the money and materialism God that is in the culture around us. Well, just as the children were a lesson for the disciples of who is welcome in, The rich man is a lesson as well, and we see this in verses 23 and 24. Jesus says that it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Well, if you compare the rich man to the children, what we'll see is that the children have nothing to hinder them. They naturally, as children, see they have a need. And so they come to Jesus and they know they need help. But the rich find it hard because rich people are self-sufficient. Rich people have a sense of pride in deserving the riches that they have. And so the humility to come under and, and get low before Jesus is 
just naturally harder. And the rich are so often deceived into a sense of security and, having, uh, and that having money will give them all they need that they won't come. Interestingly, uh, often the more that you have, the more that you want. You think, well, just a bit more will make up for what I feel I lack. And so with those kinds of attitudes, it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus spoke actually in the, in the, the parable of the sower in Matthew 13 about the deceitfulness of wealth, choking the word of God. But to illustrate the point here, Jesus explains how it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you might say, it's impossible to get, uh, you know, I can't even, I mean, I can't even do that and get to the size of the eye of a needle. You might be thinking, well, that doesn't even make sense. It's impossible to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And yes, you're right. And that is exactly the point. It's impossible. You can't do it. And the disciples are no doubt scratching their heads, just like they were in verse 10 last week when they were wondering about Jesus' countercultural marriage. They are totally shocked. They're thinking, well, Jesus, you've, you've let the children come, but the rich, surely the rich could come. I mean, the rich, they're rich because they're blessed by God, right? That was the attitude of the time. Surely, Jesus, you want the rich. I mean, if nothing else, they could really contribute to the kingdom, Jesus. If, the, if this man, this young and moral and rich man, if he can't come into God's kingdom, well, what hope is there for the rest of us? Who then can be saved? And the answer in verse 26 is striking, isn't it? With man, this is impossible but with God all things are possible with man it is impossible for anyone to be saved when you read this is impossible you could replace this with salvation with man salvation is impossible you might as well try uh, go buy a camel and you spend your whole life trying to get it through the eye of a needle, which is what people are doing when they try by their good deeds and their, their blessed life to enter the kingdom of heaven. They might as well sell it all by a camel and try and fit it through the eye of a needle because they'll get the same result. That's what Jesus is saying here. And it totally, totally blows the minds of these disciples. Because in their worldview, the rich are blessed and the children are nothing. And in Jesus' kingdom, the children come in and the rich find it hard. But with God, it is possible. Because with God, he is not limited in any way whatsoever. And he could, because he's God, and this is something to, you know, spin your head. He could, if he wanted to, fit a camel through the eye of a needle. But he can do something even greater than that. He can save us from our sins. He can bring us into his kingdom. And here's the thing, even if we're rich. You see, the rich aren't banned from the kingdom. They just find it hard. But they are welcome when they submit to Jesus, as are we all. And Jesus has done this by leaving the riches of heaven, becoming poor, having no place to lay his head, and dying in our place on the cross for our sins. And that's all that's needed, that's all that's able, that's all that's allowed to save us. We can bring nothing into God's kingdom. We never deserve to be there, no matter how good we may think we are, no matter how many commandments we might think we've ticked off, no matter how big our bank balance is, we are never deserving to be there. But as we trust in Jesus, we are always welcome to be there. As we were singing earlier, we are saved by grace alone, undeserved, yet freely shown. No accomplishment on earth can achieve the second birth. 
God's kingdom is not made up of the haves, but of the have-nots who have the one thing that matters, Jesus Christ. Well, the disciples watch this rich man walk away. He walks away sad, but the disciples, as they see him walk away, they probably see in his back pocket some wads of cash. In fact, it was probably coins because they didn't have paper money at the time, but they see he still has his riches. And so Peter, in verse 27, on behalf of the disciples, has a question because he's thinking, uh, if the rich can't come in, but Jesus, we've, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? Behind this question, he's thinking, you know, we've left behind businesses and family and reputation to follow you, Jesus. And seeing the rich man walk away with his riches still, he's thinking, is it, is it really worth it, Jesus? Is it worth us giving up all that we've given up and, and following you? Because the rich man... He's still rich. He might look sad, but surely, Jesus, he's, he's still blessed, right? We've left everything. Is it worth it? And Jesus answers this question by showing us that those who surrender all find reward. In verse 28, at the beginning, Jesus says, Truly I tell you. Truly I tell you means I really want you guys to get this. I really want you to be confident of something. And what he's basically going to tell them is, it is absolutely worth it. It is absolutely worth giving everything to follow Jesus. And we see three major ways that it is worth it. First of all, it's worth it because we will reign with him. That's the first reason. It's worth it because we will reign with him. Look at the end, uh, second part of verse 28. He says, At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now this could mean that the twelve apostles will sit in judgment on their fellow Israelites that have rejected Jesus as Messiah. But the word judge, as we have seen in the book of Judges, doesn't necessarily mean a judge in a court, but rather someone that rules or reigns over something. And I think the idea here is more that kind of thing, that the judge here is, is ruling. And the New Testament uh, gives us some verses which indicate, or tell us rather, that as Christians, we will rule and reign with Christ. I was meant to put these on the screen, but I, I, I forgot. But uh, here's a few verses I'll just read to you. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2 says, Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12 says, If we endure we will also reign with him. And in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, we read, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So those verses indicate to us that in a way that we're not really given loads of information about, we will reign with Christ. We will rule with him. And so it's another example of the world being turned upside down, is that God's people, who are so often despised and maligned, will rule the earth with Jesus. There may be a special place for the 12 apostles. Um, who knows? But certainly, we will reign with Jesus. That's the first reason it's worth it. The second reason is in verse 29, which is this. It's worth it because we'll receive reward from God. So we will reign with God and we'll receive reward from God. So in verse 29, uh, we read uh, about uh, those that leave 
uh, houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much. Now, I don't think we're supposed to read this quite literally. I mean, you can't get a hundred literal mothers, (laughs) for example. Uh, The point here is that when you surrender to God, uh, he's not going to be in debt to you. You're not going to be thinking, come on, God, I've given you this. He's no man's debtor. If you surrender family, as some of us have had to, there is family for you in the church. If you surrender time and you surrender money for his kingdom, you will not regret that. He will provide for you and reward you. Now, it's not saying, you know, if I put a pound in, I'll get 100 back. I say it's not, not literal. But here's one thing that is definitely true. When we get to heaven, nobody's going to say, oh, you know, I wish I'd given less to the kingdom of God. And again, this is a, a countercultural mind shift, isn't it? Because here Jesus is saying, I, I'm calling you to invest in the kingdom of heaven in such a way that you'll see the results of it really when you die. So give generously in surrender to God's kingdom and you will not lose out in the eternal term. So that's the second reason. But the third is at the end of verse 29. And this is, this is why verse 22, when the rich man went away sad, is so tragic. Because Jesus says, and will inherit eternal life. What was the man after, the rich man? What must I do to get eternal life? And he, he was lacking it, but he wouldn't surrender all, and so he went away sad. And the disciples are saying, we've surrendered all. And Jesus says to them, and yes, you will inherit the eternal life that that man does not have. And again, eternal life, it's not just talking about duration, although it is that too, but it's talking about the kind of life God made us for. The kind of life the rich man looked for, but lacked. The kind of life that is fulfilled and joyful and is for those who follow Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean life is all going to be good all the time. Christians suffer just like everyone else, often more than others. But this is the life we're made for. And it's worth giving everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus sums this up nicely in verse 30 with this, again, countercultural statement. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So those who are first in this world, like the rich man, will be last when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. And those who are last in this world, like the children, will be first when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus is going to unpack that verse in the parable in chapter 20, which if you want to read ahead during the week, that's what we'll look at next time in Matthew's gospel. He unpacks there what this phrase, the first uh, will be last and the last will be first, really means. But here we've seen an example of it. The children are welcome, despite them being last in this world. The rich, the first in this world, they're going to find it hard. But all of us, as we come to Jesus, are welcome in his kingdom. And for all of us, even as Christians, those who have confess that they believe that Jesus is Lord, they they believe, we believe the truth of the gospel, even for us, we still find things that hinder us from following Jesus as we ought. And so this passage is a real call to us, isn't it? To to give our all to, to following Christ, knowing that as we do so, it is absolutely always worth it. Truly, I tell you, it's not my words, Jesus' words, Truly, Jesus tells you, it is absolutely worth it. Let us, let us go for it for the kingdom of heaven, for the glory of his name. Well, some of you may know what our last hymn is because I 
uh, quoted from a verse from it uh, during the, the message. But the, the last hymn is Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, which reminds us that in, that in that verse I quoted, that there is nothing we can bring to God. We totally depend on him for our salvation. By grace that we are saved, through faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Amen. Amen.